0: Let me pray. Oh, Father, this is a tall order to speak of Your love. Poets have tried to speak of it, and it is immeasurable. Give my lips this morning power from on high that I would be able to communicate in the brief time that I can about the greatness of Your love. Help us to marvel Take us down, and then take us up again. Oh, Father, we need your help. Spirit of God, give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. God's love in His grief, verses 1 to 4. Here, God uses the picture of a father and a son. Let me read the verses for you. Verse 1, when Israel was a youth, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they called them, the more they went from them. They kept sacrificing to the bales and burning incense to idols. Yet it is I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of a man, with the bonds of love. And I became to them as one who lifts the yoke from their jaws and bent down and fed them about a father and a son. Now, before proceeding, I think it's worth some time to comment and say a few words about children. If you are a parent, you will agree with me in saying this, that children are a mystery. Children are a mystery. Children are a paradox. Children are an enigma. Think with me. For those that do not have children, they will do almost anything to have them. And for those who have children, they always seem to be looking for others to take their children. Or when your child is young, you cannot wait for them to get older. But when your child is older, you wish they were still young. But when your child is young, you look forward to when they become independent and leave the house. But when they leave the house, you long for them to come back to the house. And there's one more mystery the Bible speaks about when it comes to children, and it is this. Children are a blessing, but they can also be a grief. Psalm 127 says, children are a blessing from the Lord. And the greatest suffering a parent can experience is from their children. Because in Proverbs 17.25 it says this, A foolish son is a grief to a father and bitterness to her who bore them. Why the grief from a father? Because the father's love for his son. You see, the greater the love the father has for his son, the greater his pain will be. When His Son rejects Him. That's exactly how this book opens about the Father, about God the Father speaking with tender words about His Son, Israel, the nation, the people. He says that He has loved Him from His youth and even rescued Him out of Egypt. Out of enslavement and out of bondage. And then He goes on to say in verse 2, the more they called them, the more they went from them. The, the new American standard is preserving the person and number by saying they. They called them Israel. Who is the they that's calling Israel? It's clearly God, but why is God in the plural? Why is it? It should say God went after them. God called them. But it says they. Well, the idea is very simple. God calls upon His people through His prophets. He's always chasing after His bride through the prophets who speak. Before Hosea, you had Moses, Joshua, Samuel, Nathan, Elijah, Elisha, Job, Joel, Amos, and finally, Hosea and the rest. Prophets spoke on behalf of God and they pled with Israel to repent and follow But how would Israel respond? It says the more that God would call, the more they would go away from Him. They went from them, these prophets. And instead, they kept sacrificing to the Baal. Oh, what tragedy. What a tragedy. You see, the tragedy is not that they would leave God. That's tragic enough. The tragedy is that they would leave God and go to another. That they would turn to another and offer their praise and their worship to another, to another God. And then God's grief is explained by remembering, longingly. I taught you how to walk. I I healed you when you fell. His heart is bleeding through. Yahweh likens His care for Israel like that of a father teaching His child to take His first steps. Reminding that child that when you fall, I will be there to pick you up. We have some old rolls of film from our camera. And the film is this format that's not even around anymore. It's called APS, Advanced Photo System. I don't know if any of you had those types of cameras. But when we developed those pictures, we started to digitize them. And in this one particular role, there was a, a roll of pictures. It was of Lauren learning how to walk. And in that entire role, there's pictures of her stumbling along. And at the very end, there's a picture of her in tears. Because she has a big bump on her head because she fell and face first and hit the ground. And here we are, mom and dad, coming alongside to, to nurse her back and say, keep going, keep going. Here God's son forgets that it was God who taught him how to walk. Israel offers no praise. No, thank you. No, thank you, dad. No, thank you for healing me when I fell. No, thank you. No, thank you for rescuing me when I was enslaved in Egypt. And so God uses these illustrations to pour out his heart of grief when he says in verse four, don't you remember, I led you with cords of a man, with bonds of love. And I came to them as one who lifts the yoke from their jaws and bent down and fed them. He's using two illustrations to to let us feel His grief by saying He uses the cords of human kindness as the NIV translates this. He uses a picture of a man drawing someone not with ropes that are harsh, but with ropes with these bands of love. It's the image of a husband pursuing and chasing after his wife but with tenderness that's exactly how the book of Hosea opens is with a a prophet by the name of Hosea pursuing a wayward wife in Gomer but then he uses a second picture he uses a picture of that of an animal and he says I came to them as one who lifts the yoke From their jaws. The yoke from their jaws, and I bent down and fed them. God is expressing great kindness as the Master and Lord. God does not mistreat them and abuses them like a a cruel taskmaster over a beast of burden. Instead, He kindly lifts their yoke from their shoulders so that that animal would be able to then eat and feed. Most masters would keep the harness on while their animal would eat. But this master, he's not cruel. He's not like other masters. He removes that yoke. He detaches it from that beast of burden and he eases their load while allowing them to be refreshed with food. God is showing us His grief as He highlights Himself to be a loving husband who is rejected. And also that of a loving Master who is ignored. Oh, consider the heart of your God. Has not God been kind to you? Has He not called you over and over again? Has God not sent people your way? Pastors, leaders, teachers, Christians, your way to win you back when you were wayward? How were you when you responded? Did you blame God? Or did you thank God for the love that He has shown you? Has God not been a good master to you? Has He not been a loving husband to you? Oh, Christian, God loves you. He cares. Though He does not change, He certainly cares. God loves His child. Because when you sin, His heart is grieved. But what happens when we do not repent from our sin what happens when we when we continue to remain in our hardness of heart what happens when when the father tries to call us back with these tender chords of love trying to woo us back to him what happens well that takes us to this next scene where God's love is displayed in his discipline in his discipline in verses 5 to seven as a father. There are many warnings that I have given my children. There are times that I may have to sit them down and say these words. Because I love you, I now have to do what love requires. That's code word, isn't it, parents? We know what that means. That means there is discipline coming. There is a spanking that is about to take place. Because disciplining children is part of what it means to be a father. And in the same way, God exercises discipline towards his children. And in verses 5 to 7, God says to Israel, I will discipline you. Here's what will happen. Because you have been sinful and against me, not listening to me, not listening to those that I have sent. He says this to them in verse 5. They will not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria, he will be their king. God is saying, you're not going to go back to Egypt. You will not be under the cruel master of Pharaoh, under the heavy hand of Pharaoh, but instead you will now fall under a heavier hand, under Assyria. Here's what's happening. Instead of responding to the cords of love, they will now be under the shackles of oppression. Instead of a kind father, they will now be under a cruel stepfather. Instead of a gracious master, they will now face a merciless despot. Israel's rebellion is now flourishing. And as a result, they will now be under judgment. It began when Israel refused to listen. And shortly after, when a person starts, stops listening, they start rebelling Rebellion is evident because they no longer listen. And now, instead of listening to God, they listen to other voices. And once they listen to other voices, they view God in a completely different light. Instead of moving towards Him, they run from Him. In fact, in verse 7, this is what it says. So my people are bent on turning from me. Bent. This is the inclination of the human heart. There is a bent. There is a direction. There is a predisposition of the human heart. A position to have their backs to God. I'm turning my back to God. The inclination is no longer to listen, but to refuse and to run from God. And the same is true of us, isn't it? When God calls us, when God calls upon His wandering children, we too have a bent. Now, clearly today, we don't have prophets anymore. We don't have kings that were given visions by God. We don't have prophets who are mouthpieces that speak divine revelation to us from God. But what we have are ambassadors of God. We have Christians around us who speak the truth, who show us life and give us great care and spend great time to wandering sinners. God, in a real sense, is leading sinners with cords of love through human agents. It might be your parents. It might be people in the church. It might be loved ones who know Christ and are trying to win you back. But how do you respond to the kindness of the Master who lifts your yoke from you? This is what happens. Sometimes they rebel. Sometimes they reject and ultimately they will refuse God. That's why we sing this song. Our hearts are prone to wander, prone to leave the God I love. And here's the process of the human heart. We stop first communing with God. Then we grow restless because we want something more. God no longer is the one who satisfies us. And so what do we do? We are tempted to wander and look at other loves instead of our one true God. We look to other loves. And instead of turning to God to care for us, we reject and refuse God. Now, if it is true that our hearts have this bent predisposition, this bias against God, consider how important it is that we would spend time regularly communing with God. Beloved, hear me. Don't think for a second. Don't think for a moment that you can have a healthy walk with God when you stop communing with Him. Maybe you stop communing with Him for a few days in a row. Maybe you stop communing with Him for a consecutive amount of weeks. Then slowly that turns to months. Then that slowly turns to maybe even years. And you tell yourself, I don't feel God's love anymore. Nobody loves me anymore. There's no one who loves me and all along the people of God had been reaching out to you god has been sending his agents of love to you and so your heart wanders your heart wanders and so you want to be one back but now your heart has been not just bent but now your heart is hell bent turning away from the very people god is sending you with his cords of love oh christian respond well respond well to god's voice when he calls you back to himself When He calls you back from your Egypt. From your place of temptation. From your place of desire where you want to go. And instead be rescued again and again and again. to your God. Otherwise God may discipline you. And instead of offering cords of love. You find yourself under the shackles of oppression. Addicted to some sin that you just cannot break. That seems to be what has happened to Israel. They have now been under this, the foot of, Israel, of, of this Assyrian king. And there is no way out. Because he says, my people are bent on turning from me. And look at the note that it ends. It says this, though they called to the one on high, none at all exalts him. There's none. It's hopeless. It's none. No one is able to go to God. Notice what God does in this last scene in verse 8 to 11. God shows us his love in his promise. God shows us his love in his promise. What we are saying, God will love you. Why? Because here's why. Because God's love is relentless, God's love is immeasurable. In verses 1 to 4, he has given us his fatherly love. In verses 5 to 7, he has given us his love of discipline. And now in verses 8-11, to we find him expressing both his discipline and his fatherly love at the same time. It's one of the more difficult passages of Scripture. He says, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zebowim? This is a difficult text. Jim Boyce said of this passage, quote, I confess that I hardly know how to treat this section. For in a chapter full of tenderness, pathos, and surprises, this is undoubtedly the most amazing part. Spurgeon found difficulty in this passage saying, There seems to be a contest in the heart of God, at least in how he describes himself, as though mercy pleaded with justice and love contended with wrath. Calvin himself made a similar statement. It appears, he says, indeed at the first glance, to be strange that God should make Himself like mortals in changing His purposes and in exhibiting Himself as wavering. Is God wavering? It seems that God is wavering. Is God vacillating? Because on the one hand, God appears to be Longing to exercise mercy, but on the other hand, he wants to possibly destroy sinners. And so he asks these four questions How can I give you up? How can I surrender you? Will I treat you like Admah? Will I treat you like Zeboim? And there is this contest within the heart of God where justice and mercy are contending. God's justice says, forsake this rebellious son who has given me grief. He should be put to death. Surrender this sinful and wicked son because of his behavior that has not brought me joy, but instead has brought me misery and pain. And again, the misery of the father is because of the father's love for the son. The greater the love the father experiences because of the great love that he has for the son the more pain a father feels for a son because of this great love. Where there is no pain from a father, that means there is no love. When a loveless father will not shed any tears over their son, means there is no love. Here the father is pouring forth his heart in turmoil. God wants to treat Israel like these two cities of Admah and Zeboim. Now those are the cities you probably have never heard of. I've had to look up what these cities are. These were the two cities that were destroyed alongside the two greater cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. In Deuteronomy 29:23, God says this, All its land, its brimstone and salt, a burning waste, unsown and unproductive, and no grass grows in it like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, Admah and Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in His anger and in His wrath. So here's the heart of God. He wants to deal with Israel like He did with Sodom and Gomorrah. He wants to wipe them out because of their perversion. He wants to wipe them out because of their sin, because of their wickedness. Shall I? God says, Should I? How do we explain this? God says He wants to overthrow them. And then there's this wordplay that He puts in. There's a wordplay He says at the end of verse 8. He says, all my compassions, or my heart is turned within me. That th- that word turned is that same word for overturn. The word for overturning Sodom and Gomorrah in Deuteronomy 29. That same word now, instead of overturning them, my heart is being overturned within me. My compassions are kindling within me. So how are we to explain this turmoil that he experiences within himself? Does God have emotions that are changing? Depending on our response Is God changing and open To the future And that it is up to us And our free will To somehow make Him happy That it is up to us To make Him smile And it is up to us To make Him sad Is it that He does not know And that we are up? it is up to us To determine The state and happiness And gladness of God How do we explain this? Well, Calvin dealt with this in his day. When people came at him and saying, well, it is up to us, our own individual choices. And Calvin dealt with this insanity. That's what he calls it. That's insane for you to think that. He says this, quote, God must then, in this case, remain, as it were, uncertain. And then depend on the free will of everyone. It is hence in the power of man either to procure destruction to Himself, or to come to salvation. God must in the meantime wait quietly as to what men will do and can determine nothing except through their free will. While these insane men thus trifle, they think themselves to be supported by this invincible reason. Calvin says, I am having none of it. It is not up to you to determine what God has already determined. God is unchanging. He does not change. If that is true, how then do we interpret this passage? How then do we properly interpret this in clear passages where it says God does not change? God never learns. God never is becoming. He just simply is because he is immutable. And yet he describes emotions that show his happiness, and at the same time, it shows emotions that show his grief. What is happening? I think if you stop and think for a moment, the solution is evident. God doesn't change. He doesn't change. That means this. He's always angry at sin. That means God is always always angry with the wicked. That means God must always punish injustice. And at the same time, because He does not change, God is always rejoicing when a sinner repents. God is always full of love and always full of mercy. He is that way all the time. 24-7. Nonstop. All day long. Both are true. And He does not change. It just happens that in this passage, both affections are revealed in one paragraph. You see, God is not like us. He does not change. Where we change all the time, we are imperfect creatures where we vacillate from right and wrong. Instead of loving what is right, we oftentimes love what is wrong. And instead of rejoicing in what is right, we often rejoice in what is wrong. Instead of finding our hope in God, we find our hope in idols. We are changing all the time. And so when we look to God, God looks at us with His ongoing display of of his determination of our state. And so he either grieves or he is joyful. And here we see that God is not like us. He is not like us. We vacillate, God remains the same. He is not a man. It says in verse 9 I will not execute my fierce anger, I will not destroy Ephraim again, for I am God. And not a man, the Holy One in your midst. Oh dear friend, you, you do not want a man to be your judge. You do not want a man who wavers and vacillates. A man who may be capricious and changes and is impulsive to evaluate your life. Instead, you want God who does not change. You want God to extend mercy. As He does in verse 9, He says, I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim, for I am not a man. God will not come in wrath towards His rebellious son Israel. But the question is, why not? Why won't you destroy them, God? Because if you are just, they deserve justice. They deserve punishment. Well, God is saying this because He will keep His promise. He will keep His promise. I will not come in wrath. Because in verse 10, he says this, They will walk after the Lord. And He will roar like a lion. Indeed, He will roar. And His sons will come trembling from the east. They will come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. God is recalling to mind a promise that He made long ago in Deuteronomy 4.29 where He says this, From there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find Him in your search for Him with all your heart and with all your soul When you are in distress and all these things have come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and listen to his voice. You see, God has made a promise in the latter days. He's made a promise in the latter days to Israel that they will return to Yahweh and that one day Israel will repent and God will spare them and not destroy them to demonstrate his love. To prove his love by keeping his promise. So when God makes that promise, attack upon Israel, attack upon Israel, attack upon Israel. I will destroy you, but he holds back. I will destroy you, but he holds back. He punishes them temporally. He judges them temporally. He kills thousands temporally, but then he always keeps a remnant. He always keeps a slither, a small amount of people. It's like what Ezekiel said there's always a small amount of God's people in his pocket that he will not destroy. Because he keeps this promise that God will spare them. In fact, God has already made this promise to them. God already made this promise to spare them. And you don't have to go back to Deuteronomy. He says it in Hosea 6. Why don't you turn there? Go to Hosea 6. Listen to what God has told Israel. In chapter 6 is the first time that Israel is responding to the judgments of God. It's the first time they can finally speak upon all that God says He will do to Israel, to Ephraim. And Ephraim is just another title for the northern kingdom because it was the largest tribe. It's like saying to the one in the family, the oldest one, I'm speaking to all of you, but I'm talking to you. And so this is what the people say in response when they're being judged. It says in verse 1 of chapter 6, Come. Let us return to the Lord. For he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. He will revive us after two days, he will raise us up on the third day, that we may live before him. Israel has been given a promise that God will bring them to life after two days and then be raised. On the third day. Raised on the third day. That's that word that we're familiar with. It's the resurrection. Why does Hosea mention the resurrection? On the third day. Well, it's it's clear in the context that they will die. They will be killed. They will be stamped out by Assyria. But yet God promises to raise them up and bring them to life that they will be raised up on the third day. And this is a very important announcement. Because when they're raised up to new life, when they're raised from the dead, God then makes an announcement of what it's like when you're raised from the dead. Look at how the book of Hosea ends. Go to Hosea chapter 13. Hosea chapter 13, he says this. God makes an announcement. He says this, Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? Oh, death, where are your thorns? Oh, Sheol, where is your sting? God is explaining an announcement and He's taunting death. He's taunting death by saying, Where is your power? But what does that have to do with the love of God? What does that have to do with the love of God? Well, the answer is simple. In Hosea, marriage is that first illustration about Israel's relationship with Yahweh, that picture of marriage. And in the second half, the picture is love of a father loving his son. So how is God's love communicated in marriage, in the resurrection, and in love? Those are the three pieces, those are the three dots that we now need to connect. Because in marriage... Your relationship with your spouse is limited in time. Your relationship with your spouse is limited in time. Once your spouse dies, you then become free to marry again. That's why in marriage, there is this solemn vow in weddings that that is said, till death do us part. Because only death can separate this most intimate relationship. But God says this, I will love you with an everlasting love. Love like that of a father who will not give up his son. A father who will display mercy and not fierce anger. Here's what God does. In order to secure His love, He will not end His love in death. But He will raise them up instead. It's not death do us part. It's not death do us part. It is eternal. It is absolute. God's love is eternal. And that's why He makes this closing taunt against the enemy, death itself. And He says this to death. Oh, death, where are your thorns? Why thorns? Why not just say thorn? It just should be one. Why so many thorns? Why ask that type of question? God is saying simply this, Death, give me everything you got. Death, give me everything. Give me the full array of your weaponry. Tear them to pieces. It does not matter what you will do, death. Show me your very best. Show me your very best and I will remove your power. I will remove your sting. Give your very best attempt and I will remove all the power that you have over my people. In Israel, you will be forever mine. And even after you die, you are still mine. That's what God's love looks like. But how? How will God do this? How will God rescue a people so that He can make this taunt over death? How will God rescue Israel after they die? Well, here's the best part. Here's where the good part comes in. Because God sends another son. God sends another son. And this son... Is Jesus Christ. But this son is not a rebellious son. This son is not a son that will give the father grief. This son is a son that will give the father joy. This son was obedient, obedient to the point of death. And God will tear the son to pieces on the cross. He will raise him up on the third day just as it was written according to the Scriptures when he will be raised. And there will be this echo when the raising of the dead happens. The echo of Hosea 13:14. 14. O oh, death, where are your thorns? O oh, Sheol, where is your sting? Because those who place their faith in Christ, He will be raised. And behind Him is a harvest of others that will, others that will be raised as well. All will be raised to new life. All will be raised as the harvest where Christ is the first fruit and all that follow is this great harvest of fruit that will come. Because they place their faith not in the disobedient Son of Israel, but they place their faith in the obedient Son of God. This is God's love. This is God's love. This is God's love that will go far beyond any obstacle, any struggle, even death itself cannot hold. And I know some here are possibly on the precipice of death. There are some who are wondering, God, will you take me now? Diagnosis comes. Threats of death comes. How will you respond? respond of the child of God. is simply this. It's this refrain. Oh, death. Bring it on. Bring it on because when I die, I will be raised again. When I die, I will be with my God. When I die, tear me to pieces. I will be raised again to new life. I will have this body again anew. That is why In the resurrection, it does not matter how you are buried. It does not matter if you are incinerated. It does not matter if you are buried. It does not matter if you are bound. It doesn't matter. God will put you back together again in the new body, in the resurrection. Why the resurrection? To show simply this. That His love for you endures. That even after you die, you are forever mine Beloved, this is love that is beyond degree. Dear friends, I hope by now that you see that this love of God is a relentless love. A love that is beyond what we could ever perceive. And as the hymn writer Isaac Watts wrote, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die. Would He devote that sacred head for such a worm as I. Was it for crimes that I had done? He groaned upon that tree. Amazing pity. Grace unknown. And love beyond degree. Let's pray. Father. Take us upward to this love. Take us upward to your love that is immeasurable. That you would love us. And keep us and not destroy us as You did with Israel. Because You keep Your promise. You keep Your promise and You will not break Your promise. You will not vacillate like us. We break our promises all the time. But God, You keep Yours. And because You keep Yours, You are the God who does not change. Therefore, You sons of Jacob are not consumed. Oh God, thank You Thank you that you keep your promise and thank you that you have shown us and proven your promise to us in your Son. Your true Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in His perfect obedience, He brought you much joy. Oh, I pray this morning that if there is anyone here who does not know this Son, oh, would you draw him or her to yourself. Show them your love. Show them that life after is possible because of Jesus Christ who conquered death, who took away its sting, who took away its thorns. Because God, you kept your promise. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.